Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 12, part B, starting with verse 15. We'll probably go down to about verse 30 or so. Last audio, we found out that Jesus had healed a paralytic's withered right hand, and the Pharisees in response were filled with rage, and they were discussing what to do to destroy him. Verse 15 says this, when Jesus became aware of this, aware of what? That the Pharisees were trying to, to destroy him, he withdrew from there. Huge crowds followed him, and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known. Now, why did he withdraw? Because the Pharisees were after him. Jesus was not on a suicide mission. He took prudent precautions when he had to. I'm thinking about two situations in China where I believe that ministers of the gospel, very brave men who are suffering for Jesus in jail, but they they didn't act wisely, in my humble opinion. One of them I predicted a year in advance. I said he's going to get arrested, and the other one, Put had big meetings right there on the fourth ring road in Beijing where the Olympics were coming and the cops were everywhere. Well, God's going to take care of him. Well, Jesus didn't act like that. If he realized that the Pharisees were going to kill him and his ministry would be ended, he got out of, he got out of Dodge. Nothing wrong with that. Now, where did he withdraw to? He withdrew to the Sea of Galilee because we know that from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verse 7, the parallel passage. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea. And a large crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and so forth. He could have used supernatural means to hide himself, but he didn't, of course, because he's operating as a man. How did he know the Pharisees were after him? Well, John Gill, who tends to think that most of Jesus' actions were done through Jesus' divinity, says that Jesus knew that they were after him because he's the omniscient God. No, I don't think so. I think Jesus is operating as a human being. Most of the time he was until he did a miracle or something. Probably somebody told him. One of his disciples said, the Pharisees are after you. You know, the word got out, I'm sure. Now, why did Jesus, in verse 16, say he did not want them, the crowds, to make him known? Well, here's some options. NIV Study Bible. Jesus didn't want to be considered just a miracle worker. He wanted to be a teacher as well. And all that, all those miracles and all those crowds trying to get healing, they wouldn't sit still to listen for his teaching. He wouldn't have an option to teach him. Those are suggestions of the NI Study Bible. In addition to this last one they give is that Jesus didn't want to be killed prematurely, in my humble opinion. That's the real reason. He was trying to hold down messianic expectations until he had a chance to train his disciples and to get converts all through Israel. This phenomenon of Jesus telling people to be quiet is all over the scriptures. Let me read some. Some of them are parallel, but let me just read them to you so you get the overall effect. Matthew 9:30, and their eyes were opened. Then Jesus warned them sternly, be sure that no one finds out. Those were the two men that were following Jesus from Jairus' house to, to Peter's house at Capernaum. Matthew 8, 4, then Jesus told him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses prescribed as a testimony to them. That's the, the first leper that was healed. Matthew chapter 8, verse 4, parallel passage in Luke 5. Mark 1, 44, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest. That's the leper again. Mark 5:43. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. I believe that was Jairus' daughter. Mark 7:36. Then he ordered them to tell no one, but the more he would order them, all the more they would proclaim it. Luke 8:56. Her parents were astounded, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. So those are some uh, sample healings that Jesus did, and he accompanied those healings with the warnings to be quiet. But here, it was in front of a whole crowd, so the question arises, why would he tell the crowd to be quiet when the whole crowd knew? Well, it could be that he's not really concerned about the crowd in north of the Sea of Galilee, knowing he was worried about the murdering 
SOBs down in Jerusalem who were going to kill him. That's who he didn't want to know. And and he was telling the, the crowds, you know, keep it to yourselves. Tell your friends and neighbors here in Galilee, but don't spread it around because it's going to end up going down to Jerusalem. I don't think there was ever a chance that that happened. It's, it's amazing to me how Jesus kept telling them to please be quiet, and nobody ever paid him attention to. Attention. And besides, there were people up there from Jerusalem in those crowds up around Galilee we know from, from Mark. And so, I don't know. It doesn't seem very likely that, that is Jesus' request would be would be honored. Jesus said that as he withdrew, uh, he could did do it alone because as he withdrew, large or huge crowds followed him and he healed them all. So he was working while he was withdrawing from the Pharisees. He healed them all. I think here in this case, all, of course, you know, is ambiguous. It can be all without exception or all without distinction. But here, I think it's all without exception of the people who came. Everybody that came, boom, they were healed. And you can imagine what kind of crowds those, that's going to create. People are going to flock like flies to honey. These crowds, as I mentioned earlier, came from all over the place. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 8 says this, Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Now, Edomia is the Roman province right south and west of Jerusalem. It's the Greek form of the Hebrew Edom. Edom was south of the Dead Sea and east of the Dead Sea, but Edomia was in a little bit different spot. So that district is south and west of Jerusalem, beyond the Jordan, of course, is east of the Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon, is on the Mediterranean course, up north towards Syrophoenicia. So basically, there were people coming from everywhere. I mean, the word about Jesus had spread by word of mouth all over. And they were flocking to him. Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 through 18. So that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's the quote from Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. The particular scripture that is being fulfilled here is Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, where Isaiah says this. This is my servant, I strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. Pretty much a direct quote by Matthew of Isaiah. Now the question arises, did Jesus do the miracles with the express purpose of fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy? Because in chapter, in verse 17 in Matthew 12, it says, So that what was spoken through the prophet, he healed all who came to him, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Was Jesus deliberately trying to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy? John Gill doesn't think so. He's just saying that the Holy Spirit in Old Testament times and Isaiah's times, he threw Isaiah for knew what Jesus was going to do in the future, and Jesus just did it. I don't know. That's an interesting question. It doesn't really matter, but... It's interesting if Jesus might have deliberately tried to fulfill those prophecies. Now, the prophecy said that God would put his spirit, his Holy Spirit, on Jesus, and he would proclaim justice to the nations. Well, what does justice mean? Could that just mean what even unbelievers think about justice, justice and equity? Or could it mean the gospel, how God is just and righteous to forgive sinners? John Gill thinks it's the gospel, and so does Adam Clark. And I think that's probably what Isaiah was talking about. He will proclaim the justice of the gospel. The gospel is good news. Not only are the evil punished, but the righteous are vindicated. That's something that everybody wants in their hearts, is to see evil punished and righteous vindicated. And we don't see it in this veil of tears. We see it sometimes. But we don't see it all the time. But that's what's going to happen with G- when the gospel goes forth. There's going to be justice. Now, Jesus is called a servant from Isaiah. Matthew here quotes Isaiah as saying, Here is my servant 
Now, not only in Isaiah 42.1 was Jesus called God's servant, but also in Isaiah 53.11, he will see it out of his anguish and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. There you get the suffering servant motif that you hear about so much. Jesus is God's servant. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. He not only served people, he served God. Matthew chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Matthew continues, He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He's still quoting Isaiah here. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice victory to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. This is, another, this is messianic, obviously, here. Now, when... Matthew says, quoting Isaiah, that he will not argue or shout. We have a little problem here because Jesus did a lot of arguing with the Pharisees. But as John Gill points out, Jesus didn't shout loudly in the streets in order to win for the sake of winning, to get popular applause, to contend in a wrangling way, which is your typical way that these false messiahs who popped up uh, right after Jesus, that's what they would do. They were, they were demagogues. Jesus wasn't like that. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He didn't get up and say, I am the leader and I'm going to start a revolution and I am the Messiah. He just quietly went around teaching and the crowds came after him. He made his case quietly, quickly, and when the Pharisees attacked him, he shut them up immediately. Now, when Christ had, withdrawn to the, had just withdrawn to the sea, and so that is appropriate here because he didn't sit there and try to stand up to the Pharisees who were plotting to kill him. He just withdrew silently. Mark chapter 3 verse 7 says, Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea. That fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy according him to Adam Clark because he didn't contend and shout. He withdrew. That makes sense to me. We go to verse 20. Going back to verse 20, he, Jesus, will not break a bruised reed nor put out a smoldering wick. The idea is the same here, so we'll take a bruised bruised reed and smoldering wick together. What are some options? What does he mean he will not put out? He will not break a bruised reed. Well, the bruised reed, according to Gill, option A is the scribes and Pharisees. He's not going to put them out. He's going to wait till the day of vengeance, perhaps E70, in order to snuff them. Or he could be referring to publicans and sinners. Since they were sinners, they were like a weak, bruised reed. That's sort of a similar idea. John Gill says it could be new converts to Jesus' kingdom. They're wounded in their spirits. They're contrite. They're broken-hearted for their sins, and Jesus is not going to bruise them. Or, as Adam Clark says, it refers to the bruised reed and the smoldering wick refused to, re- refers to the Jewish state. Jesus left it to die on its own without trying to overthrow it. I think that's what the answer is there. He didn't try to start a revolution and put and get rid of these evil Jewish rabbis. He let God do it in AD 70, and so and he he didn't try to do it himself. It's interesting that if this is the proper interpretation, the nation of Israel is called a bruised reed and a smoldering wig. That's the symbol of weakness. A reed that's bruised that can hardly stand up in the wind, and Jesus is not even going to break it. A wick that's just about to go out, Jesus is not going to mess with it. But it does show that this, the kingdom of Israel was weak despite all, the, all of their arrogance and pride. He has led justice victory. He did that when he overcame those Jews. And then the nations will put their hope in his name. That's because the nations are flocking into the kingdom as I speak. People are believing in Jesus. All of this really distinguishes Jesus from your run-of-the-mill revolutionary. 
Most revolutionaries don't go around refraining from breaking a bruised uh, reed. That metaphor of a bruised reed is a symbol of weakness. We can see in Ezekiel 29.6 that all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am Yahweh, for they have been a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. All right. Now this victory in verse 20 that I just mentioned, until he has led justice victory, he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice victory. What victory is Jesus referring to? Well, there's some options. It could refer to when the gospel is put into people's hearts, maybe, or it could be when the scribes and the Pharisees were wiped out, which is what I think it is. And I think they were wiped, and I know they were wiped out in AD 70, so I think that's what Jesus is referring to. Now, it says the nations will begin to put their hope in his name. As I mentioned, even as I speak, that's happening. But even back then, it was beginning to happen because people were coming all over to hear Jesus. As I mentioned from Mark 3.8, they were coming from Edomia, Tyre, Sidon. That's not Israel. That's outside the borders of Israel, east of the Jordan River, Syrophoenicia up there in Tyre and Sidon. So Matthew is pointing out that Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Let's go to Matthew 12, verse 22 through 23. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. And all the crowds were astounded and said, Perhaps this is the son of David. Son of David, of course, is the popular Jewish title for the coming Messiah. We, they all knew that the Messiah came from David's house. John 7, verse 42, the crowd was saying this, Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David once lived? That's in Micah. And, of course, Nathan's prophecy to David in 2 Samuel 7 was well known. So, son of David is what they were thinking. They were thinking, mate, mm, this might be the Messiah. Now, I've got a question. Why in the world... Would they say perhaps? I mean, Jesus just healed a demon-possessed man who was not only blind, he was unable to speak. And that means deaf, and the Greek word there means mute and dumb. Excuse me, uh, dumb as well as deaf, both deaf and dumb. An incredible miracle. And you're saying perhaps? Well, some people speculate that perhaps they were scared of the Pharisees and weren't able to come out and, and directly say that he was the Messiah. I, that's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea. I have my doubts about that because it seems to me that just saying perhaps this is the son of David is going to get the Pharisees mad at the crowd just as well as, yes, this is the son of David. I think they still weren't really sure. But they were astounded. The idea is starting to spread. The Messiah has come. Let's go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, The man drives out demons by Beelzebul the ruler of the demons. What had the Pharisees heard when the Pharisees heard this, namely that Jesus had driven out a demon from a blind and deaf and dumb man? Well, instead of being happy about this poor man who was deaf, dumb, and blind, the Pharisees turn on Jesus and they say, he's using the devil to drive out the devil. Beelzebul, of course, is the prince of demons. That was who they used to refer to the devil. Uh, Beelzebul is the New Testament term, the Greek term for what in the Old Testament was called Beelzebub, which meant Lord of the Flies, Beelzebub, Bull. The Greek term means Lord of the Dunghill, not much difference. Beelzebub in the Old Testament, some people speculate, was a Jewish mockery of the Hebrew word for the Ekronite god, the, Phar the Pharisees, the Philistinian god at Ekron, who was called 
the exalted Baal, and if and, and the exalted Baal, the Hebrew for that is very close to Baal, Baal's above, which means Lord of the Flies, and so the Jews were making fun, poking fun at the Akronites because of their god, and that god could have been an idol in the form of a fly, which is pretty disgusting, or it could refer to the abundance of flies around the meat offered to the idol, or it could be that the idol was actually invoked to drive away flies. We don't know exactly why it was called Lord of the Flies, but at any rate, somehow the term went from being exalted Baal to God of the Flies to God of the Dunghill to the devil. So basically the Pharisees are saying Jesus is driving out demons by the devil, the ruler of the demons. Now... It is nowhere recorded in the scripture that that the Pharisees actually called Jesus the devil, Beelzebul. They said he was driving out demons by Beelzebul, which is not quite the same thing. However, he was not only was he in charge, however, he was here being charged with being in league with Satan, whose name was Beelzebul. So that's pretty close. And not only that, in some places they said he was possessed of a demon. Let's look at that in Mark chapter 3, verse 30, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He has an unclean spirit. He's got a demon. John 7, 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. That's not the Pharisees. That's a crowd. John 8, 48, the Jews, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's just, it's, I always think that verse is funny because it sounds like being a Samaritan as bad as being demon-possessed. But think about this. To accuse the Son of God having a devil. We're going to be talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in just a minute. But first of all, let's see how Jesus answers this idiotic charge of the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 through 26. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now this is straight logic here. No prince, no political ruler is going to start destroying his own troops. Now, why, if Jesus was in league with the devil, why would Jesus be casting out demons from people? Because he'd be destroying his own kingdom, kicking out his troops that were possessing other people. This is total stupidity. Their malice of the, the malice of the Pharisees must have clouded their judgment. As Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, their charge was incredible and absurd. Matthew 12, verses 27 through 28. Jesus continues, and if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, who is it your sons drive them out by? Now he's gone from using strict logic to a little personal attack on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees because the Pharisees had people who were driving demons out. And, and he's saying, well, look, if it's okay for them to drive demons out and you don't think you were driving out demons by Beelzebul and I'm driving out demons, I'm on your side. I'm doing the same thing you're doing. So why do you say that I'm on the devil's side? If I'm on the devil's side, then you're on the devil's side. But if the Pharisees who are driving out demons aren't on the devil's side, then I'm not on the devil's side either because we're doing the same thing. Well, I guess that's a strictly logical argument there. For this reason, they, these Pharisees who are driving out demons, will be your judges. They'll judge the Pharisees who are making this stupid claim against Jesus. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And, of course, this is he, he's assuming that, of course, he's driving out demons by the Spirit of God. And if that's true, then that means the kingdom of God has come to you, not the kingdom of Beelzebul, the kingdom of God. You got it wrong, Pharisees. You got it exactly wrong. And for some reason, you're not willing to admit that the kingdom of God has come to you. 
Let's look at some passages where the Pharisees were driving out devils. Mark 9, verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Well, that might be some Pharisees, but it also could have been a sincere person, not a Pharisee, who hadn't attached himself to the disciples, but who was trying to follow Jesus, but he just hadn't joined up with the disciples. So that's not really a clear verse. But Acts chapter 19, verses 13 to 14 is clear. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcist attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So we have seven sons of Sceva, and they are called itinerant Jewish exorcists using Jesus' name. So there you have it. And plus, besides the scriptural example, the scholars know from the literature that there were also just Jewish exorcists, not casting out demons in Jesus' name, but doing it with their own little formulas, formulae. So, Jesus had got them. That's one of the stupidest arguments that the Pharisees ever came up with. Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. And again, he's still going back to this Beelzebul charge. He said, look, I'm stealing possessions out of these demon-possessed people. I'm I'm driving demons out, which he, he analogizes to making the house clean of possession by stealing possessions out of a house. Well, if I am cleaning the house out, if I am cleaning people out of demons, I've got to bind the strong man to do it. Because if it's a strong man's house, I'm not going to go in there and steal his possessions because he's going to come in there and stop me. So i got to stop him first. And so I'm binding the strong man in order to get these possessions out. That means I'm opposed to him. I'm not on his side. I'm binding him. The strong man, of course, being a symbol for the devil. So I bound the devil. Now I'm able to rob his house. And by the way, this is also another example of how Jesus had power over the devil. That's something we need to always remember. Christians are always so scared of the devil. The devil is scared of us. We are not scared of him. Jesus lives in us, and that same Jesus frightened, frightened the hell out of demons. They couldn't stand to, to, see, to see demons, to see Jesus. They just couldn't stand it. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And, of course, he's still referring to the strong man, Beelzebul. Beelzebul is not with Jesus. He's against Jesus. Anyone who does not gather with me scatters that Beelzebul, the strong man, is not gathering with Jesus. And he's not gathering people into the kingdom. He's scattering people. So Jesus is reinforcing the point that he is opposed to Beelzebul. Now, we can make an application here. There is absolutely no way to be neutral about Jesus. If you're not with him, you're against him. And if you're and if you're not for him, you're against him. I say that because uh, I get a little bit perturbed about all these people who got one foot in the kingdom and one out. They want to taste the joys of the world. You know, all that fame and glory and money and sex and drugs. I just saw a wonderful story about a porn star who got saved. And her grandfather took her to church after she'd caught an STD being a porn star, and she decided to get saved. And she went, stayed in the porn industry for three and a half years before she was convinced that Jesus wanted to get her out. I've known of people who smoked dope and finally said, you know, there's something wrong with it. Um, so they had one foot in the world and one foot out, and you might say they were not really with Jesus, but Jesus cleaned them up, you know. He, he cleaned up his fish. He caught them and cleaned them up. I really do think we have to cut some people some slack as they're battling with their, their sin that they've been involved in and as they try to get out of it.
And I realize, of course, that they're false hypocrites, people who profess Christ who show no fruit, but there are also people who profess Christ who haven't gotten out of their sin yet. The so-called carnal Christian that Reformed people believe they don't exist, or at least they act like they believe that they don't exist. Oh, yes, they do. I would say that somebody who is in the porn industry is probably carnal. I'm definitely carnal, and she said she believed in Jesus, and she's now following the Lord. She married a pastor. She's living a happy Christian life, witnessing the people all over the place. I suppose she was saved while she was in the porn business. She actually carried a Bible to work. Anyway, let's go to Matthew 12, verse... Well, actually, let's stop here. Matthew 12:31 is going to be about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And just as a little preview here, the reason that Jesus is talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is because the Pharisees just accused him of doing miracles by the devil. And that's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. But we'll talk about that next week. I hope you, next audio, I hope you enjoyed this, video, this audio.